Good. Well, we're going to um, we're, we're going to get straight into it. There may be one or two of the parents who've taken kids over to kids work who will will join us as they come back. But we're gonna we're gonna get cracking. So we are continuing on today in our series in Luke's Gospel on the road with Jesus. If you've been with us uh, over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've uh, spent our last couple of weeks in chapters 15 and 16. Uh, and Jesus has told a number of parables or stories uh, with meaning in those couple of chapters. Uh, kind of targeted at two audiences, uh, both his disciples, those who've gathered to him and are following him, and then the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were uh, being very critical of him, and in particular critical of the fact that Jesus was accepting and welcoming sinners and tax collectors and people who the religious elite felt had no part in the kingdom of God, that Jesus was welcoming them to him uh, and that they were coming and listening and, and engaging with him. And we're going to follow straight on from those parables this week uh, as, as Jesus welcomed all these different types of people into the kingdom of God, welcomed them into the family of God. And we looked at that parable uh, of the prodigal son and we saw the great welcome home of the father, picturing God who, who welcomes rebellious sinners back into the family of God. Uh, and Jesus, now as we get to chapter 17, turns again to his disciples. And, and, and at the end of chapter 17, he talks to them about what it will be like when he returns, when he comes back and the kingdom of God is made fully known on the earth. But until that point, until he returns, we live in this tension of the, the now and not yet of the kingdom. Like in one sense, if you are a follower of Jesus, so the disciples, those who are with him on the road, who are following him, those tax collectors and sinners who drawn around and who are putting their trust in him and following him, and any of you here today who would call yourself a Christian, who've put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If that's you, then in one sense, the kingdom of God has come. And we are in the kingdom. We live as citizens of the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, your primary citizenship is not your country of birth or residence. Your primary allegiance is not to the the monarch or government of the country in which you reside or where you were born. But if you are a Christian, then your primary identity, your primary allegiance is as a citizen of heaven, to the king of heaven, to Christ. And, and Jesus speaking to his disciples in this now and not yet, of like the kingdom hasn't fully come, and yet at the same time, here and now, we're to live as citizens, turns to his disciples and he, he gives them some instructions on what it would look like to live as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but where you are a citizen of makes a difference to how you live. Do you spend any time with people from other cultures? 
who have been citizens for some time of another nation, you will realize that where you are a citizen has an impact on the way you live. It influences your views on a whole host of things. It influences your value judgments on a whole load of things. And actually, we have in Britain a set of British values. I don't know whether you're aware of that or not. We're not going to go through them now. I'll give loads of time to them. And I'm not going to, I'm not making comment on whether I think they're good or not either. But, but you should be aware we have them. There are five key British values. And, and those values, whether you're aware of it or not, impact whole hosts of things about what it means to be a citizen of the United Kingdom. They impact what happens in our schools, what's taught, how it's taught. They impact things like how we trade. They impact things like employment law. They, they inform and impact and shape so much of life as we know it. And you can look them up online if you don't know what they are. I'm not going to go through them today. But there are these key values that underpin life as a citizen in Britain. These British values. And, and in much the same way, there are key values that should underpin life as citizens of the kingdom of God. And in these verses, I think, Jesus begins to outline some of those values for Christians. And just like the key values of Britain inform really all that we do in one way or another, these values for citizens of the kingdom of God ought to inform all that we do. It ought to inform our marriages and our relationships. It ought to inform the way we raise our children. It ought to inform the way we do business, the way we engage with other people. It ought to inform all of life. And so... Jesus begins, chapter 17, by addressing sin and temptation. And he's addressing citizens of the kingdom. And he says this to them, we read from verse 1 together. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Now we're going to come back to this subject in more detail in the new year when we do a, a short series on the Lord's Prayer. But in brief, Jesus is very clear on a number of things here. He opens up saying, guys, disciples, Christians, temptation will come. Okay? He's real about it. There's no expectation that if you become a Christian, you are going to float through life free from temptation to rebel against God. That's, that's not going to happen. And I'm sure that if we're honest, 
we would be prepared to say, yes, our experience is that temptation comes. Temptation to rebel against God's will and God's ways. Temptation to rebel against him and to, to do things our way for our pleasure. Jesus is clear though. Temptation will come. Then he also says that for those who tempt others to sin, there will be serious consequences. But together we can resist temptation because he goes on to talk about how we relate to one another. And so I want to say that kingdom value number one as we unpack this is that citizens of the kingdom are sober and serious about sin. Kingdom, citizens of the kingdom are sober and serious about sin. We know that there will be temptation to sin. And we take it seriously. There are a few ways we see that in these verses. Jesus says that we should pay attention to ourselves. What he means by that is that being aware that temptation will come, having been warned, forewarned, that temptation will come. We should pay attention to how we respond to that, to our own lives. Are we giving in to temptation? Aware that it's going to come, are we arming ourselves, guarding ourselves against it? Or are we leaving ourselves vulnerable and open to temptation? There should be a soberness and a preparedness as citizens of the kingdom. But also aware that temptation will come, we should keep watch over one another. He says you should be aware, pay attention to yourselves, but then he also then turns to look at how we keep a watch over one another. Seeking to restore brothers who sin. He says if your brother sins, we're observing. We want to help each other. He says if your brother sins, rebuke him, point it out, take it to him. And if he repents, forgive him, see him restored. If you see someone in sin, you should address it with them. There should be a soberness amongst Christians about sin and a preparedness to talk about it. A seriousness to address it and deal with it. Not in a harsh and condemning way, but in love. In a desire that they would come to repentance, in a desire that they could be restored. That's the, the pattern that Jesus lays out here. Instead of leading people into sin, instead of tempting others, we're supposed to lovingly call them out from it. And when they have sinned against us, we should be quick to forgive. Which I think is the second value that Jesus then puts in for citizens of the kingdom. He says, as those who have received forgiveness, we should be quick to forgive. Citizens of the kingdom of God are those who have received forgiveness and are quick to forgive others. Jesus says, as we address others, if they repent, receive them back. And even if they do it again, even if they do it seven times a day, but come back sincerely in repentance, we're to forgive as those who have been forgiven. This doesn't mean being a doormat 
or remaining in an abusive relationship. And I think that's important to say. And the Bible has much to say about that. And we don't have time to take a deep dive in it today. But knowing that we have been forgiven should lead us to be those who extend compassion towards others. Those who forgive others. Not just once, but who are willing to forgive and forgive and forgive. Those who don't harbour bitterness and resentment. When we come to Christ, and Will's just effectively prayed this out as we're worshipping, God doesn't count our sins against us. In his kindness and his faithfulness, because of what Christ has done, he, he chooses to remember our sins no more. Such is the forgiveness of God. And he calls us to do the same for others. To forgive as we've been forgiven. These are challenging values, aren't they? I think they are. <laughs> if we're honest, we go, like, okay. <laughs> like, this isn't easy. To be those who are sober and serious about sin, not, not kind of light and glib about it. To be those who know what it is to be forgiven of our sin and in turn forgive others. This is a call to greatness in the kingdom of God. This is a call to do something that's truly remarkable, to live free from sin, to be forgiven and forgiving, even when it's hard, even when you have to do it over and over and over again, to not let bitterness and resentment creep in. And in the face of this call, the disciples are probably going, we just can't do it. Like, that's a high bar. Like, I don't think we can do it, Jesus. And so the very next thing we read is that the disciples respond to Jesus. And it, it seems kind of unrelated almost, uh, but it's not. They say this in verse 5. They make a request of him. We read, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's like they went, ah, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to be people who live like that. We need your help, Jesus. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. The disciples in there like, gosh, we don't know how to do it. Turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need your help if we're going to live like that. We need you to increase our faith that we even could believe that we could live that way. Please give us more faith. I think Jesus' response to them is just absolutely brilliant. See, because he doesn't do something like abstract or esoteric or kind of mysterious. He doesn't just go, here, have more faith. Boom. And the disciples are all of a sudden emboldened and full of faith. He, he, he doesn't do that. Now, I, I just want to be clear. I do believe that God can and does at times by his spirit give a gift of faith to people. He supernaturally can, can give us faith to believe him for something. 
We read that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that God gives the gift of faith to people. But the normal means by which our faith is strengthened, the normal means by which we're grown to maturity is through revelation of truth about who God is. And for us, that's primarily through Scripture, through His Word. So as we expand our view of God, of of who He is and what He's like and what He's done, that our faith is strengthened. Actually, as we do things like we did for much of the first part of our meeting today, as we sing those great truths about who He is and what He's like, His steadfastness, His faithfulness, His unchanging nature, that our faith is strengthened. And so we're going to unpack it now, but I think kingdom value three that we get here is that citizens of the kingdom know that the answer is found in looking up to God rather than in on ourselves. That the answer is found in looking up to him rather than in on ourselves. And that's precisely how Jesus helps the disciples. They request him, increase our faith. And this is how Jesus answers them. He refers deliberately to a tiny mustard seed. Something that is not particularly significant, is not impressive, is not large, is not substantial. Bear in mind, they've just said, increase our faith. Like, we want bigger faith. And Jesus goes, mustard seed. deliberately chooses the tiny mustard seed after being asked about increased faith to say that doing great things in the kingdom of God is not about you and how much faith you have. It's about who your faith is in. What Jesus is conveying to the disciples is not the quantity of your faith that counts, but the object of it. It's to whom you are looking. It's God who moves the mulberry trees. Not us. And in knowing this, we're helped not to worry about our faith. And instead, we're inspired to trust God. The disciples say, give us massive faith. And Jesus goes, you don't need massive faith. You just need to understand that the one whom you're looking to is the one who is able. It's not about the size of your faith or your ability to believe enough. It's about the one who you're believing in. The crucial issue in advancing the kingdom of God is not the quantity of our faith, but the power of the one in whom we have faith. We have to remember and hold on to that truth. Because whether you feel strong or weak, whether you're succeeding or struggling, is not actually what's going to make the difference. The weight isn't on your shoulders. God is able and God is working. So we come to him. We hope in him. We trust in him. We look to him, not to ourselves and our ability to conjure something up. We look to him. Jesus wants his followers to understand that 
even if we managed to live as model citizens of the kingdom of God, we would still be utterly dependent on the grace of God. We still need to look to him. Like, even if you had the most amazing-sized faith, (laughs) you'd still be totally reliant on God. You can't do anything with it on your own. It's about who it's in. Jesus wants us to understand that we are utterly and totally dependent on him. Remember, citizens of the kingdom know that the answer is found in looking up to him rather than looking in on ourselves. And to help us get it, Jesus gives an illustration. And it's a kind of quirky one, but it's really, really important that we grasp it. We read from verse 7, he says this. He says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. In essence, Jesus says that the the owner of a slave or the master of a servant doesn't become a debtor to that servant ever irrespective of how much work the servant does for them. And he uses this picture to help us see that actually God is never our debtor. This might seem to our kind of modern Western mindset a a challenging way of looking at it, or an odd way of looking at it even. But I think once we grasp it, it's actually really very helpful for us. I think we live in a very entitled society. We live in a culture where we constantly believe, we've talked about this before, that, that we've deserved it, that we earned it, that, that we're worth it. And at first we can read these verses and think, gosh, that sounds a bit harsh. Like the master doesn't thank the servant. Gosh, that sounds a bit harsh. But I think we've got to get this. The essential idea that Jesus is communicating is that thanks is a response to grace. Thanks is a response to a gift. Thanks is a response to something undeserved. And the servant has only actually fulfilled what's expected of them, what they're in that context being employed to do. The reason the master doesn't offer thanks is that the servant is not giving the owner more than the owner deserves. Does that make sense? So the reason the master doesn't give thanks is that the servant isn't giving the master any more than the master deserves. He isn't treating his master with grace. Grace is being treated better than you deserve, receiving something unmerited or undeserved or unearned. Guys, we never, ever 
give God something more than he deserves. It's impossible. We never, ever give God something that is more than he deserves. So God is never, ever in any way indebted to us. We've got to get that. God is, God is not indebted to you in any way. Even if you served him perfectly all your days, God would not be indebted to you. In, in this illustration, as it were, that, that Jesus gives, God doesn't say thank you to us as though we have extended grace to him in some way because we're incapable of extending grace to him. We're incapable of giving him more than he deserves. He, as the source of life, has given you everything. You have nothing that hasn't first come from his hand. And so we're constantly indebted to him. That will never be reversed. It can never be reversed. We live every moment. Every moment, by his grace, by his generosity, by his kindness towards us, we're constantly indebted to him. In every moment, he is always giving us more than we deserve. And so we are always owing him thanks. That's never, ever going to not be the case. Does that make sense? Yeah? If everything comes from him, if he provides all things, he is always in every moment giving us more than we deserve. So even if we lived in perfect obedience, even if you did absolutely everything you were supposed to do, like the servant did for his master in this story, even if you did everything you were supposed to do perfectly, and never did anything you weren't supposed to do. God would still not owe you anything. Now I think sometimes we get this so out of shape. We think, oh but God, I've, you know, I've been diligent. I've served, I've done these things. I've, I've been obedient to you. And we can start to list off the ways in which we've lived as, as good citizens of the kingdom. And God says, good, <laughs> that's what I've called you to. Even if we live faultlessly, God would still not owe us anything. All that you have is by his grace. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. We're breathing right now because he's giving. We just sang that earlier, didn't we? We sang your breath in our lungs. And so what's our response to the acknowledgement of that? So we pour out your praise. God, out of what you've given us, we want to give back to you in praise because you have treated us with grace, because you have been generous towards us. We want to praise you. We thank you, not the other way around. Whatever we have accomplished, however good you've been, 
we still stand before him as undeserved recipients of his amazing grace. That's what happens in this story, right? The servant does everything that's required of him. And at the end, what's Jesus' conclusion? So also you, when you have done everything or all that you were commanded, so even if you've lived in perfect obedience, what's your response to God? Is to recognize his provision and to say, this is grace. We are unworthy servants. We haven't deserved or earned your favor on us. It's unmerited kindness. We've only done what was our duty. But you, God, have gone above and beyond. You've poured out kindness on kindness. Grace upon grace. John Piper, author and theologian, says it like this about this passage. He says, this is of great encouragement. And I'm like, yes, it is, John Piper. This is of great encouragement. Why? It's because it means that God is just as free to bless us before we get our act together. If we're unworthy servants, he's just as free to bless us before we get our act together as he is after. Since we are unworthy servants before we have done what we should and unworthy servants afterwards as well, it is only grace that would prompt God to help us. And therefore, he is free to help before and after. This is a great incentive to trust him when we feel like our act is not together. If, if living faithfully does not make us deserving of his kindness, we're still undeserving because we could never be good enough to earn it, then equally when we have not, it's all his grace. It stops us from getting proud and conceited, but it also gives us great comfort when we fall short, doesn't it? saves us from falling into condemnation and despair. Oh Lord, it's only by your grace that we can come near. It's not on our merit. It's not on how obedient we've been this week. It's not on how diligent or faithful we've managed to be. It's your kindness. It's your grace. That means we can draw close. At our weakest and most despairing, we're dependent on him. Yeah? Yeah? And at our most faith-filled, we're still utterly dependent on him. We never get beyond it. At our worst, we're in need of his grace. And at our very best, we're still in need of his grace. And he willingly, willingly pours it out on all who ask. Kingdom value four that citizens of the kingdom know that they're utterly dependent on the grace of God. On the mountaintop, in the valley, in every season, citizens of the kingdom know that they're utterly dependent on the grace of God. And Luke immediately now moves the narrative on to Jesus being back on the road between Samaria and Galilee on his way to Jerusalem. And, and Jesus encounters some people on the road who were under no illusion about their need of help. 
And, and this is included here for our benefit. These people who Jesus meets, we're going to read about now, were under no illusions about their need of help. And they were also under no illusion about who could do something about it. Jesus. And so they come to him. We read from verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? There was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus, straight after teaching his disciples about living with these kingdom values, about understanding mustard seed faith, that it's the object of our faith rather than the size of our faith that really counts. After teaching them about these things, he, he gives us an object lesson in the flesh for us to observe, to see what it means in practice. See, these lepers came to Jesus knowing that they needed him, knowing that they were utterly at the mercy of God. If something was going to be done about their condition, they could not do it themselves. Just as those in the kingdom know that they're dependent on the grace of God, these lepers knew they were dependent on the grace of God. They were dependent on Jesus. They couldn't do anything about their condition apart from his kindness. They knew that the answer was in looking to him rather than looking in on themselves. That it was on the object of their faith rather than the size of their faith. And just one of them comes back to Jesus. In humility, he bows down before Jesus and thanks him. This man knew that he'd been cleansed by the grace of God, that he wasn't deserving or he hadn't earned his healing. His healing didn't lead him to be proud of like, look what amazing faith I had that made me well. He knew that it was the grace and kindness of Jesus. So he came back to him and he humbly bowed down and thanked him. And we have received something far more transforming than the cleansing of a leper. Been cleansed from our sins, we trust in Jesus, been cleansed from all unrighteousness that we stand before him, free, forgiven, holy. And this should lead us like that leper to a place of humble gratitude. Kingdom value five is that citizens of the kingdom are marked by humility and gratitude. Jesus doesn't let this moment pass 
without underlining what he's been teaching. He, he says to the man, is your faith has made you well. Straight away we get this object lesson in mustard seed faith and our mulberry bush moving God. It wasn't the size of the leper's faith that made him well, but the object of his faith. He didn't just have like huge belief that he could be well. It wasn't the fact that the leper kind of just had insane amounts of positive thinking and good vibes. He cried out to Jesus. He didn't look inside for his answer, but he looked to Jesus. It was the object of his faith that made him well, not the scale of his faith. He cried out to Jesus. He believed that Jesus could do something, and Jesus did. The leper knew it wasn't his doing. Like, he came back. He didn't look at his healing and go, wow, check me out. Look what I managed to do with my mulberry bush moving faith. I made myself well. He got it. He knew. He knew, like the servant. That he was an undeserving recipient of grace. He hadn't earned it. Didn't deserve it. But Jesus had given all the same. We haven't earned it. That's how we come today. Unworthy, but welcomed. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah? That's that's how we come to God today, because of Christ. We put our trust in Him. We come knowing full well that we're unworthy. Yet we're welcomed. We come in the full knowledge that we're undeserving. That even in our very best moments, we fall short. We fail to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standard. We're undeserving. And yet amazingly we're embraced. We're drawn close by the Father. And we know that even on our best days, the reality is we've got tiny mustard seed-like faith. We're like the disciples who we've got to admit we come to Jesus and go, oh Jesus, increase our faith. Like we haven't got it in ourselves. We've, we've, we've realized the, how far fall, short we fall when we look at the values of a citizen of the kingdom. When we look at what it means to, to relentlessly forgive and forgive and forgive just as we've been forgiven. When we look at what it means to resist temptation and to not lead others into temptation and to, to, to go after others brothers and sisters who we care for and love dearly and to call them out of sin to repentance and restoration and we realize oh we can't do it in our own strength Jesus we need your help and with our tiny mustard seed faith we also realize amazingly that Jesus says hey with that 
I can make mulberry bushes be uprooted and dumped in the sea. <laughs> God can do above and beyond. We've got mustard seed faith, but we're caught up in the eternal plans and purposes of God. He wants to use you to extend his kingdom. As you trust in him, as you lean into him, as you rely on him. Amazing, isn't it? I'm going to pray for us and then invite Dave up to lead us in communion.